Hi, I'm Dave from Winnipeg, Canada. The Sound of Young America is an independent production supported by listeners like you and me. If you'd like to donate to support the show, visit MaximumFun.org and click on Donate. Live on tape from my house in Los Angeles, I'm Jesse Thorne, and this is The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org. Radio sweetheart, on the airways, it's the sound of It's the Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. On this week's program, Neil Gaiman and Henry Selleck. Gaiman is a celebrated writer. In the 1980s, he created the seminal comic series Sandman, which followed a dream god protagonist through a series of quite literally surreal adventures in the sleeping world. He's been honored for his prose as well. His 2002 book Coraline has been adapted into a film by Selleck, the master of stop-motion animation. Selleck's films include The Nightmare Before Christmas and James and the Giant Peach, and he recently animated the underwater sequences in Wes Anderson's The Life Aquatic. In Coraline, the bored young protagonist passes through a bricked-over door into an alternate world where everything is both a little better, a little more exciting, and a little more sinister. Not least because the residents of the other world, like her other mother, have buttons where their eyes should be. Something smells good. Mom? What are you doing here in the middle of the night? You're just in time for supper, dear. You're not my mother. My mother doesn't have... Buttons? (laughs) Do you like them? I'm your other mother, silly. Now go tell your other father that supper's ready. It's the Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guests on the program are Henry Selleck and Neil Gaiman. Uh, welcome to the Sound of Young America, guys. Thanks for having us. And Neil, congratulations. Uh, just a couple of days before we recorded this interview, it was announced that you won the uh, Newberry Medal. It did. Does, um, that, does that come with an actual medal? I very much hope so. Because <laughs> what's the point otherwise, right? I mean, sure, it's... Although it's you better. sort of really start hoping that maybe it'll be chocolate. Uh-huh. That, you know, they'll, they'll give you the medal and then you'll peel it open and start eating it. And then you won't have the medal anymore. That's the trick. It's the, the thing is, it's made of chocolate. But if you eat it, you won't have your... So you just have to keep it. And anytime you want chocolate, you have to figure out a different plan. But it'll, it's okay because it, it's stamped. The medal will exist stamped on the front cover of every copy of the graveyard book from now until probably the end of time. Yeah. You know, they'll be calling the last judgment and the trumps will be going and then people go, hey, that book, look, it's got the Newbery stamp on it. But you finally, it helps you move up into embossed author territory with the embossed. <laughs> I, I'm now going to have an embossed medal on the cover of my books. And it's, and it's great because it's the only one of these cool things that I can get. A few years ago, I had an inquiry from the Pulitzer Committee um, who were considering doing some kind of special award for Sandman. And I had to say, no, I'm not actually American, and I haven't taken citizenship. <laughs> and then actually with, I think it was Coraline, the, the National Book Award people got in touch and said, if we were considering you for an award, would you be eligible? I said, no, I'm not, actually. But <laughs> the Newbery is the only one of the great awards that is open to residents as or- well. And I've been here for... 
16, 17 years now. So they figure I probably didn't do it just to get a Newbury. I'm, I'm probably, you know, not no fly-by-night Johnny. I will be here tomorrow. Well, Neil, let's let's talk for a minute about where uh, Coraline came from as a book. Um, it's a project that you had been working on for many, many years before it was even published some years ago. What was the initial seed? The initial seed was being the father of Holly Gaiman, who is now 23, but at the time was about four, and who would come home from kindergarten, and she'd see me writing, and she would clamber onto my lap and dictate her own story, which was called Holly's Story. And um, it was about a small girl who came home to discover her mother had been replaced by a witch pretending to be her mother, who then locked her in the cellar, and how the girl and this other fairy girl had to escape in order to go and track down their real mother who had gone to America with these evil witches following them. And it was absolutely terrifying. And I thought, how cool, my daughter likes this kind of <laughs> weird gothic fiction. I will go and buy her some. So I went out looking for the kind of deeply disturbing, terrifying, creepy gothic fiction that existed out there for four- and five-year-olds and <laughs> couldn't find any, so resolved to write some. What, what came What came up in her story that surprised you? When she was telling this story to you, what didn't you expect out of it? I don't think I expected just how scary and disturbing it was. I mean, that was the for me, that was the joy of listening to Holly create a story was the fact that I'm, you know, I've got a five-year-old on my lap and it's going dark and she's loving it. And that absolutely fascinated me. And the idea that, that you could have these stories about identity, it, it tapped into when, I mean, I was a kid, I remember probably age nine or 10, and in geography lessons, very often geography, because I got very bored in geography lessons, so my mind would wander. And just sitting in a geography lesson thinking, okay, what would happen if while I was at school, my parents moved house and forgot to tell me? And then I'd go home and they'd have moved house. And, you know, probably knowing my parents, after a few days, they'd go, where's Neil? And But, you know, by that time, it might be too late. And then I thought, what would happen if my parents moved house? And these other people moved in who looked exactly like my parents, but weren't. How would I know? And that's the kind of thing that I used to ponder about. So I took some of that, and I took a door that existed in my house when I was growing up that was just this beautiful door, and when you opened it, it was bricked up behind it, and started writing a book intended for Holly. So, can I go out? I think it's perfect weather for gardening. No, Caroline, rain makes mud. Mud makes a mess. But Mom, I want stuff growing when my friends come to visit. Caroline, I don't have time for you right now. And you still have unpacking to do. Lots of unpacking. In the story Coraline, uh, the protagonist opens a, a door like the door that you described and finds a world that seems like her own, but a whole lot more awesome, and specifically one where her parents, instead of having other things to do, are completely dedicated to her. It strikes me as kind of, uh, of course, we we find out that there's a dark side to that as well. It strikes me as kind of a, a subversion of the themes 
of kids fiction where like an orphan goes on an adventure uh, because it doesn't because an orphan doesn't have any parents. You know what I mean? Uh, what kinds of stories were, were in your mind when you were uh, when you were putting this one together? Were there corollaries or um, themes that you were playing with in, in other works? Well, there were two huge themes in Caroline that, that just seemed all the way through to be to be vital touchstones to me while I was writing it. Um, one of them was just the idea that it, it's a line that I took and probably misquoted from G.K. Chesterton where he says that you are not telling children that the bogeyman exists. You're not telling the children that there are dragons and monsters out there because they know there are dragons and monsters out there. You're telling children in fairy stories that dragons and monsters can be defeated. And that is huge and important. And that kept me going. That that made me go, you know, I can be as scary as I need to be with this character because this is about defeating evil. This is about fighting the monster. And the other thing that became a sort of sub-clause of that was just the idea that I wanted to tell people reading, especially kids, that those who do not necessarily pay you as much attention as you would like still love you, and that those people who pay you all the attention you could ever want do not necessarily have your best interests at heart. And I think that was a good lesson to put into it. Another roll? Sweet peas? Corn on the cob? I'm real thirsty. Of course. Any requests? Mango milkshake? One of the movies that I thought of from my own childhood when I was uh, watching Coraline that I saw that you actually worked on very early in your career, Henry, was Return to Oz, which was a film that uh, gave me terrifying nightmares <laughs> for us. But I'm gonna, I was about to say for a significant portion of my childhood, but if I went to sleep tonight and had a Return to Oz nightmare, I would not be surprised. What's interesting to you about presenting a dark world for children as opposed to presenting the kind of um, you know, everybody's friendly, uh, you know, Care Bears, uh, tiddlywinks world that we that we often get, especially given that you know here you here you were then you know working at Disney, who have a reputation maybe not well earned for making those kind of warm and friendly tales. I should announce that uh, you brought up Return to Oz, and last night there was a, a screening of of our film Coraline. For um, industry types and some friends in town, and uh, Faruza Balk, who played that Dorothy in Return to Oz, was Neil's date. <laughs> Neil is nodding. <laughs> He's acknowledging the truth. It is. Um, as long as his date wasn't those guys like on the wheels that were wheeling around. <laughs> oh my God. Wheelers. <laughs> and of course, Henry worked as a storyboard artist. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I um, yeah, I worked as a storyboard artist. It's sort of how I learned to direct. I, I worked under um, maybe the world's greatest editor, Walter Murch, who's also a sound designer. It was his first and only 
film that that he directed, he ended up not having enough of a public persona to to guide the troops. Uh, but you talk about me and my attraction to darkness. I'm, I actually think it's a, a healthy balance that I'm interested in, and it's an un sort of healthy zone that a lot of films for kids, especially animation, uh, especially features, has uh, ended up dwelling in for some time. But you go back to the first Disney films, especially considering the age in which they came out, and they're, sure, the, the dwarves are funny and, and delightful, and, and Snow White's just basically a rotoscoped live-action girl and pretty, but, but the, the darkness of a queen who wants her heart cut out and returned to her in a box is you know it's extreme it's and it's right i feel like i'm actually more interested in, in a balanced world neil how did you uh when you were writing the book uh imagine it aesthetically as someone who's worked in uh graphic form so often i, I have to imagine there was something in your mind how did it look in my mind when I was writing it, I'd always expected that it would be illustrated when I finally got it published by Edward Gorey. And we'd even just started the very preliminary talks of, you know, inquiring if Gorey would be interested and getting sort of noises back from him that he knew of my work and was a fan and blah, blah, blah. And the day that I finished Caroline, he died. Um, it was actually, it was very weird. And I finished it. And Dave McKean, who I'd worked with for years and had never really thought of as a potential children's illustrator, I sent the manuscript to Dave to read to his daughter. I sent it out to friends with daughters, basically, and said, please read this and let me know what happens. And his daughter, Yolanda, loved it so much, she forced him to draw a mouse circus for her, the invitation to her birthday because he was going to draw the card. So he did that. And um, at that point, once I saw that, it was, it was very obvious that Dave was now going to be the illustrator. We'll have more with Neil Gaiman and Henry Selick when we return in just a minute on The Sound of Young America from PRI, Public Radio International. Production of The Sound of Young America is supported in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com. As anyone who's ever attended a liberal arts university can tell you, the most pressing problem in the world is a lack of awareness. And the most important thing you can do to change the world is to engage in awareness raising. That's why we've created the Darkish Teal Ribbon for Maximum Fun Awareness. Display this powerful symbol on your lapel or on your MySpace page in a forum signature in the sidebar of your blog or on the bumper of your car, and you'll be taking a stand against ignorance. Specifically, ignoranceofmaximumfun.org. Visit our blog at maximumfun.org blog and click on the darkish teal ribbon in the sidebar. You'll be led to a wide variety of darkish teal ribbon options to help you raise awareness in all your digital endeavors. If you want to raise awareness in the real world, you can get your own Darkish Teal Ribbon by sending a self-addressed stamped envelope to Darkish Teal Ribbon, 720 South Normandy Avenue, number 512, Los Angeles, California, 90005. You'll also find that address on the About page of our website. Or create your own Darkish Teal Ribbon in any medium you desire. Try creating a giant papier-mâché head 
like the Ralph Nader head that haunted my nightmares from late 1999 to mid-2001. We've got a post on the forum to chronicle your best efforts, and we're giving out periodic, completely random prizes for those doing a particularly impressive job. Remember, ignorance may be bliss, but awareness raising is whatever is one better than bliss. Today is the day to display the darkish teal ribbon for MaximumFun.org awareness. Welcome back to The Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guests are the writer Neil Gaiman, author of Coraline, and Henry Selleck, the film director of the stop-motion animated feature adaptation of Gaiman's book. In the film, the title character, Coraline, uses a bricked-up wall in her house to travel to a mysterious world where everything's a little better, a little brighter, and somehow a little more sinister. Here, have beat, make you strong. That's Vadanya, Caroline. Coraline. Henry, you've worked in all these different animation media, with stop motion being the predominant since you've struck out on your own, but you also, you know, you uh, you worked on Monkey Bone that was a, a combination of live action. You've done the first full stop motion feature in The Nightmare Before Christmas. And from what I understand, this project, when it was set to become a film, only got the uh, go-ahead as a live-action project. Did you always imagine it as stop-motion? The fact is, I love these pages. I saw pictures in my mind immediately. Uh, I took the project to Bill Mechanic, uh, an executive at Fox who had struck out on his own with Pandemonium, and he also responded to, to Neil's great story. This is actually almost two years before it got published. And the problem was uh, Bill had a, a deal with his new company. He was His output deal was through Disney, and he wasn't allowed to make animated films. And it was just one of those, oh, that's, that's too bad. So for at least a couple of years, it was thought of as a live-action film. But in writing... Uh, the screenplay and adapting it, it it just kept feeling like it needed to be animation. And eventually, Bill's deal was over with Disney, so it was it was a pretty long path to get back what Neil would have wanted right from the start. And ultimately, what I'm uh, you know happiest to be working in is you know the stop motion medium. What were the opportunities that you had there? Why was it what was it about it that was turning into animation? You know certain details um when uh, I first got the pages and my younger son George was 3, I laid him on his back. I got him to lie still with promises of sugar <laughs> and put black buttons on his eyes and took some pictures. It was unbelievably horrifying. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's many reasons, and a lot of it probably uh, unconscious, uh, my my subconscious working this out. But you know, Coraline is is, is a, it's, it's Alice in Wonderland meets Hansel and Gretel. Uh, it's a fairy tale in modern guise, and uh, I think stop motion. It is timeless. It always looks old fashioned from some other time period. It it has this twitchy energy it shudders not intentionally just through the fact that you can't perfectly control the motion and movements and if you touch the hair 
it might vibrate or the, the fuzzy sweater or the fur on King Kong. And I had felt that same kind of energy in this, this story, this, uh, you know, you go to this pleasant other world, but you know underneath this darkness is waiting to shake its way out. They say even the proudest spirit can be broken with love. <laughs> of course, chocolate never hurts. Like what? They're cocoa beetles from Zanzibar. I want to ask you about those two worlds and creating those two worlds, Henry. Coraline's world, as it's presented to us at the beginning, is sort of uh, the world of a child who's has that you know typical childhood frustration, boredom, wanting a little attention, wanting something exciting to happen. There's a little, there's a little bit of stasis and flatness to it, or tightness to it. And uh, the other world that she enters into has to have these qualities of um, both you know, unimaginable, spectacular beauty, which I saw on the screen, but also that tension that you talked about, that suggestion that things are about to go wrong. Um, how did you, did you, did you feel like you got that right at the beginning? Did it take a lot of fine tuning to get to that tone? It, it took an enormous amount of fine tuning because what Neil can get away with in a, in a book, I mean, it's because he's such a skillful writer he can um, have enormous contradictions, and they'll be, uh, I think, easier. I, can, I think I can imply things with words. You, you're getting the reader to do a lot of the work, so you put a little thing here and a little thing there and a little thing there, and now the other mother just got very, very scary, and you didn't really do very much, but you just dropped a couple of words into a paragraph. Henry has to take the feeling and the emotion that I created in that paragraph and go, how do I literalize that? How do I take something that's that's almost a metaphor? That, that It's like in the book, the other mother gets more and more insectile and you start getting metaphors that indicate she's kind of like a spider at the center of a web and that she's this hungry creature, but it's never, it's never literal. What is lovely is Henry then grabs that as a metaphor and makes it concrete. And now, as the mother, other mother changes, she does become more insectile. And by the the final version of her, she does have rather too many legs. <laughs> and she is very, very hungry. And Caroline really is at the center of the web. I want to be with my real mom and dad. I want you to let me go. Is that any way to talk to your mother? You aren't. My mother, apologize at once, Coraline. No! I'll give you to the count of three. One. Two. It's the Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guests are the writer Neil Gaiman, author of Coraline, and Henry Selleck, the film director of the stop-motion animated feature adaptation of Gaiman's book. You really, Henry, put the 3D, the film was shot in 3D and, and in many theaters will be shown in 3D, at the center of that effect as well. I thought it was very interesting the way you um, 
I'm going to be honest. Most of my 3D movie watching experience is Captain EO at Disneyland. And there's a lot of things that fly at you in Captain EO. There's almost none in Coraline, but the but the depth of the feeling of depth changes dramatically between the worlds and between scenes. How did you use 3D for that effect? I've got a strangely long history with 3D. I did a 3D rock video for the Viewmaster Corporation 20 years ago um, and met who actually... The, the master of modern uh, digital uh, 3D, Lenny Lipton. So I, I got this exposure, met a guy who was going to develop this this new system, which is which is really great. It's uh, still use glasses and so forth. Um, I use 3D to sort of draw people into the other world, as Coraline is drawn into the other world, and came up with this idea. It was really hard to convey to my art director, so I built a foam core model. Um, of crushed space in the real world. It's literally, the sets have very little depth. The floors and walls and ceilings are, are raked at huge angles. And when you go to sort of the, the copies of, uh, in the other world of those sets, they're built very deeply. I wanted it to be a sense of um, not stuff jumping out, punching the eye. We do it a few times, but but that, you know, I can breathe here. This is more pleasant. I had freedom in the other world, and then later in the in the film, we kind of make a good thing go bad and use it to create tension. The other world um, in early scenes, um, it, there are some sequences that are just among the most beautiful things I've ever seen on a movie screen, especially oh, seeing them in three D. But also with that, I, no pun intended, but otherworldly quality. Did you worry about making things too beautiful or beautiful in the wrong way? Yeah, I, I've, everyone's very talented, and, and one of my number one jobs is to keep the beauty under control because everyone wants every shot to be filled with gorgeous things. Um, I have had to sneak out on the sets when no one's around with a can of black spray paint <laughs> or gray spray paint just to kind of knock down the beauty. It, it, it is actually a huge challenge because they all look at their one set. This is going to be the best set in the world. It's going to have everything. Uh, the, uh, the lighting cameraman, they look at their one shot. I'm going to put all the 3D in the world in this and light it gorgeous. My job is, no, we only need one thing in this, and it'll be okay. When you put it together with the other shots, you'll, you'll be happy again. Neil, you know, oftentimes when somebody's shooting a movie based upon a book, and especially a book that was as successful and, and well-loved as this one. We, we look at it in terms of, um, you know, realizing the author's vision or, or something like that. What did Henry bring to the film that you didn't expect? What was there there that was new for you? It's much funnier than I thought it was going to be. I think that was one of the lovely things for me, actually watching the whole film all the way through, as opposed to the way that I'd been watching it, which was in dribs and drabs, sitting there and watching it, especially last night, and just finding myself laughing at the funny bits. And, you know, French and Saunders as Miss Spink and Miss Forcible. Um, Ian McShane's astonishing Mr. Bobinski. Uh, they're funny. And even if they do get very, very scary toward the end, they are genuinely funny there's these scotty dogs with these funny teeth in the movie 
Well, I, I was laughing my rear off at these Scotty dogs with the funny teeth. There's like 200 of them. And it occurred to me that I had never seen funny teeth in a dog. So I promised <laughs> myself I would check in with you, Henry, to see where did the idea of making putting these funny teeth on a dog come from? Probably funnydogteeth.com. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it started out... Um, I just want a quick comment on something about the sure. humor, the humor that Neil likes, because I long ago was a guest of, of Neil's when he did a public reading of of Coraline, the entire book. It was hearing him read it and his timing and intonation that really let me know how funny the book actually is. It's very dry, um, but it's something I think uh, some readers might not get. So I was kind of aware that that's part of it too. And I was looking for ways to amplify that in, in, the, in the movie that I didn't have Neil reading all the characters' parts, so I had to work harder. Um, the funny teeth, it, it actually started out with uh, I wanted to really scare the audience the first time uh, Coraline goes down to visit Miss Spink and Miss Forceville, the old actresses that live down in the basement. She knocks, there's nothing there, and suddenly dogs bark, and the teeth were made large initially just to scare you but they ended up being funny instead <laughs> and we just we just made them even a little bigger and it made them funnier well guys the the uh film is is really spectacular and i, I hope people check it out especially in 3d thank you for uh being on the show thank you jesse yeah thanks yes and for, for not minding that i twitted during it very <laughs> great Coraline opens Friday, February 6th in theaters across the country. That's our time for another Sound of Young America program. I've been your host, Jesse Thorne, America's radio sweetheart. The show produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our theme music written and performed by Dan Grayson with help from myself. Interstitial music provided by Dan Wally. The show edited by Nick White. Our intern is Brian Fernandez. You can find us online at MaximumFun.org, where you will also find the darkish teal ribbon for Maximum Fun Awareness. Get on that, people. My email address is jesse, J-E-S-S-E, at MaximumFun.org. We'll see you next time right here on The Sound of Young America.